Welcome to Canada's National Bible Hour. This is Brian Albrecht, your host and president of Mission Go. Today our scripture reading is taken from Luke chapter 9, verse 24, which says, For whoever would save his life shall lose it, but whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. Here's a contrast about a person's life. You have two ways to go. If you want to control your own life, if you want to be in charge, your way is much better than God's way, then that first part of the verse is for you. For whosoever would save his life will lose it. That's a life that's not surrendered to God. But whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. We humble ourselves, we realize we're sinners and we need grace, we need God's help at every moment of every day. And when we have that kind of an attitude of humility each second of each day, and that without Him, we can't please Him, we can't do things that will bring honor and glory to His name. And so when we have that kind of an attitude, we're open to the guidance of the Holy Spirit, we're open to spiritual truth, we can grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and we can have many opportunities that God puts in our way to serve Him, to share the good news of the gospel, to meet needs in other people's lives, to bear one another's burdens and to help them. That's the life that we want. Whosoever will lose his life for my sake, for God's sake, for Christ's sake, the same shall save it. And we will be in the presence of Jesus Christ forever and ever and ever throughout eternity. It's a radio edition of Global Times. Today we have in our studio Sammy Fukushan, who has a wonderful church ministry in downtown Paris. You also have an impact into uh, students, PhD students. Well, they just show up. I mean, we, <laughs> we, we had a, a, an interesting group of, of students uh, doing their PhD, uh, and um, one of them uh, is, is an amazing story. Uh, I mean, when the Lord is at work, we can just be amazed. And this young man from a non-Christian family doing his PhD on church history, uh, in his thesis is on the Marty, martyr of Stephen according to the Ethiopian tradition. Now, this is a very unique subject of this, but I, I didn't know that Ethiopia had a huge tradition of Christianity. And so he made his study on that, and he made a girl from our church that is also studying on a PhD in Ethiopia. And she invited him to come to, to church on a Sunday morning, and uh, it was a revelation. After three weeks, he accepted Christ, uh, just coming to a Sunday morning service. Uh, 
And his comment was to say, until now, whenever I would go to a church, which meant a Catholic church, he said, I would hear dissonances between what I would read uh, and, and hear. But when I came to this church, I heard harmony. And uh, I accepted Christ, and I got the privilege to see him growing amazingly. And uh, I mean, uh, he just left our church because he, he, his wife, by the way, I married, they got married, the girl and him. The girl that invited him, they, they want to get, I married them, and she, uh, she got accepted to, she accepted an, an amazing scholarship from the French government to go study as a postdoctorate research study. So they are in Rome now, they just left. I miss them, but they're going to come back to Paris in a couple of years, and I know he will be a strong pillar of our of our church. So, yeah, the Lord is doing some pretty Praise amazing things. Yeah. Would you like to tell us a little bit about your uh, study of the Reformation? Aha. Uh -huh. <laughs> Do I have three hours? <laughs> Just uh, connected with with what's happening. I think the Lord has an amazing sense of humor in many ways because um, before we would moved to Paris. Uh, I started a, a doctor of ministry project, and I'm, I'm far from being done, by the way. It's taking a much longer time than planned, but my, my research is based on church history and how the reformation that took place in France had an impact in the country and how can we go to the plant churches with a revitalization mind. Kind of how can we learn from the past and adapt it to the present time, which means that I have a very specific interest of this period of time between 1550 and 1570, a very short amount of time, because France went through a tremendous renewal all over the world. I mean, in, in everywhere, not just theology, but medical and politics and economics. Everybody was so transformed by the reading of God's word. Well, um, knowing this, we were called to go to Paris, and here we arrive in the Latin Quarter because the Lord obviously opened those doors, you know. Two weeks after our first Sunday morning worship, we got a tour from the, given by a guide from the American Church of Paris in English. So, so let's go get this Reformation tour. Where the Reformation tour started, very nearby the church where we are. I said, why are they starting there? Well, we found out that the nearest Catholic church which is Saint-Germain-des-Prés, which is a very known church in Paris. Actually, they just celebrated a thousand years of their steeple mm -hmm. uh, there, <laughs> where that church on, on, the, on the early Reformation days had a priest called Père Brissonnet, who became the Bishop of Meaux, who was very influential in the Reformation. So the guide was telling the Reformation in Paris started right here. And then we found out as we tour that two streets right behind where we meet today, right two streets behind is where the very first church was established in 1555. Mm -hmm. Next to this church, we heard that four years later, 4,000 Huguenots were singing the psalms for a whole week long in May just to kind of provoke the king on the other side of the river, <laughs> just to tell him, here we are, 4,000 people in just four years, you know. Uh, I mean, can you imagine, four years after the first church, 4,000 people singing psalms for a whole week long. Well, and we know that because in the history of Paris, the city of Paris, there is tracks of that because the king was so upset that he sent his army to kick those Huguenots out of the place there. Where one year later, we know that there was 75 churches established in Paris. So we're talking about 55 to 59. In four years, 75 churches 
for sure were established to have their first synod where they wrote the French confession of faith called uh, the Confession for La Rochelle, which is still what we believe in today. Uh, two years later, we know there were 2,000 churches established in France. So it's to say this time, this period is so fascinating for me anyway, and it turned out that the Lord has opened the door to plant a church right where this historical background is. And by the way, in, 17, in 1572, so very short after that, this big persecution came uh, with the St. Bartholomew Day, for those who are aware about that, which happened also, I mean, on the other side, but it affects this area. And as far as I know, since 1572 until uh, 2012, uh, there was no public worship in this very neighborhood. And I, I think it's interesting that the Lord has said over the years that really prepared us to, to search on this topic and to come to this place. And this is right where he opened these majestic doors uh, to worship the Lord. So we're very excited about that. I'm saying praise the Lord. I'm really Amen. thankful yes, for that. That's... After 400 some years, man. He's not That's, done with France, so we can keep working. <laughs> <laughs> praise the Lord. It's still hope. <laughs> yeah, praise the yeah. Lord. Well, I'm so thankful for the way the Lord's uh, blessed you. Yes, praise the Lord. Uh, we really appreciate the ministry you've had over the years. You've been so faithful, and, uh, and we just are so thankful for you. And praise the Lord for you. May the Lord bless you. Thank you so much for listening to Canada's National Bible Hour, and we really appreciate the prayers of those who pray for us each week and help us financially to support this broadcast. As you know, this is a listener-supported ministry, and we count on your donations to help us stay on the air. This month, we're offering a really wonderful book of poems by Helen Steiner Rice, who's a famous Christian writer. It's entitled, A Collection of Love Gifts, and I just thought I'd read one poem poem out of this wonderful uh, booklet. It's called He Loves You. It's amazing and incredible, but it's as true as it can be. God loves and understands us all, and that means you and me. His grace is all sufficient for both the young and old, for the lonely and the timid, for the brash and for the bold. His love knows no exception, so never feel excluded. No matter what or what you are, your name has been included. And no matter what your past has been, trust God to understand, and no matter what your problem is, just place it in his hand. For in all of your for in all of our unloveliness, this great God loves us still. He loves us since the world began. And what's more, he always will. What a wonderful... You can get a copy of this wonderful booklet, A Collection of Love Gifts, by writing to Canada's National Bible Hour, Box 1210, St. Catharines, Ontario, L2R 7A7, or in the United States at Box 2010, Buffalo, New York, 14231. Let me
This message is from Dr. Hartman, his Isaiah series. Printed copies are available upon request. Today we're going to begin a new series that will last for some time. We're going to be studying the highlights from the greatest prophets of all time, Isaiah. This book has been held in highest esteem by both Jewish people and Christians as well. It will not be a verse-by-verse study, as that would be too long for radio. But instead, we'll look at the highlights to get an overview of this great prophetic book. To get started, we must first get to know the author of the book, learn a little about his life, the time of writing it, and why he wrote the book. We do not have a lot of biographical material on him, but we know that he was the son of Amos. We also know that he was married and had two sons named Shir Jashub and Meher Shalal Hashpaz. He lived somewhere between 750 and 680 B.C. He prophesied during the reign of at least four kings of Judah, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. He must have lived a little while after Hezekiah died during the reign of Manasseh. We know that because he wrote a biography of Hezekiah according to Second Chronicles 32:32. According to tradition, his death was by being sawed in two. These years in the history of Israel were a time of great political and spiritual struggle. The northern kingdom of Israel had declined so far that they fell to the Assyrian Empire in 722 B.C. At that time, it looked as though Judah would also collapse, but the hand of God miraculously prevented that by slaying 185,000 Assyrian troops. In the midst of this political struggle and spiritual decline, Isaiah was sent by God to deliver his message to the people of Judah. That message was that they should trust in God, who had promised them a glorious kingdom through the messages of Moses and David. Isaiah urged the people of Judah not to depend upon alliances with Egypt or any other power to protect them, for the Lord was the only protector they would need. The book of Isaiah has often been called the fifth gospel because of its emphasis on salvation and the coming Messiah. Judah had sinned and would be judged. God would save a remnant out of Israel, purified through the fire of his judgment, and forgive their sins. God would usher in a universal messianic kingdom marked by the return of God's visible presence, the Messiah, with complete peace, justice, righteousness, and the bestowing of great blessings upon redeemed Israel. Ultimately, all of God's purposes of judgment and salvation will be executed through the Messiah, who Isaiah calls his servant, redeemer, holy one of Israel, branch of David, Emmanuel, the light of Israel, a light to the Gentiles, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, the righteous king, and the messenger of God's presence. The book of Isaiah can be divided into two parts. It has 66 chapters, just like the Bible has 66 books. 39 make up the Old Testament and 27 the New Testament. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah deal with the judgment on Israel because of their sinfulness. They also deal with God's judgment on other nations because of their sins and as well as the way they treated Israel. This problem of sin must be addressed before God can bless. Chapter 40 through 66 deals primarily with the salvation and comfort. Here the emphasis is on redemption of sin. It also shows us God's sovereignty over all other gods. Now we're ready to examine chapter 1. In the first verse of this chapter, 
Isaiah makes it clear that he's writing about the things that he saw plus what God communicated to him through vision. His focus in the book will be on Judah and Jerusalem. He was very familiar with Jerusalem and the temple. When he wrote the book, Israel was about to succumb to Assyria, and the southern kingdom would fall to Babylon about a hundred years later. In verses 2 through 9, God lays out his indictment against Jerusalem. We read, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know my, no, my people do not consider. A lost sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a brood of evildoers, children who are corrupt. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked the anger of the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from a backward. Why should you be stricken again? You will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it. But wounds and bruises and putrefying sores, they have not been closed or bound up or soothed with ointment. Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Strangers devour your land in your presence, and it is desolate as overthrown by strangers. So the daughters of Zion are left as a booth in a vineyard, as a hut in a garden of cucumber, as a besieged city. Unless the Lord of hosts had left to us a small remnant, we would have become like Sodom, and we would have been made like Gomorrah. Isaiah, speaking for the Lord, cried out, for the heavens and the earth to hear God's accusations against his people. We saw in these verses that God had been so faithful to his children, but they still rebelled against him. Even dumb animals obeyed their masters and were aware of the source of their care. They were more aware of their benefits than Israel was of God's care of them. Turning their back on God brought real consequences. These had been promised in Deuteronomy 28, if they turned against the Lord. He was reminding them here of the results of disobedience. Isaiah used the figure of a person who's sick and who was covered with open sores all over his body. By doing this, he was speaking of their coming destruction. They would be desolate, burned, and, and invaded by others. Their dwelling would be only in temporary shacks, like what was used for a short time by those who harvested the crop. Finally, except for a godly remnant, the Lord would have destroyed them as they did Sodom and Gomorrah. As I read these verses, my thoughts went to our own nation. In effect, we have done the very same thing that Israel is accused of by God. These were his own special people, and he brought some terrible judgment on them because they had forsaken him. When I look at how our nation have turned their backs on God today, should we expect less judgment from them or from him than what came upon his own beloved chosen people? In verses 10 through 20, God gives a message to the nation on how they should deal with their sin. First, he likened the rulers and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to Sodom and Gomorrah. 
and told them they had better listen to what he had to say. He asked the people rhetorical questions. What was the purpose of all the multitude of sacrifices they were offering to him? The people had assumed that making sacrifices and being ceremonially clean was all that God wanted. The Lord made it clear to them that he was sick and tired of all their hypocrisy. Their hearts were full of sin. Their holy days with their sacrifices made on them, were nothing more than a stench in God's nostrils. Their prayers were not getting through to him. He says that when they spread their hands before him, he would hide his eyes from them. <clears throat> he was tired of their ways, so he would not hear from them. To top it off, their hands were full of blood. Let me pause here for a moment to bring this into the present day. There's so many people who go through all the ritual of church attendance trying to look religious before God, but there's no reality in that. They might look good on Sunday, but they live a life all week that is completely dishonoring to the Lord. Ritual without reality of knowing Christ and walking in daily fellowship with him is as useless as what the people were doing in the days of Isaiah. What is your life like before God today? Beginning in verse 16, God offers them a way out of their wicked, sinful condition. Wash yourself. Make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doing before my eyes. Cause to do evil, uh, cease to do evil. God offered forgiveness to the truly repentant person, but he promised only judgment to those who continually rejected him. Most of the people felt they could live any way they wanted to as long as they kept up the ritual sacrifices required under the law. 3,000 years ago, Solomon said, there was nothing new under the sun. People do the very same thing today. Verse 18 is the one that is often quoted. Come ye and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. They are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Here, God made a great offer to a sinful and wicked people. For them to reason together was not a call for negotiation, as you cannot argue with God. Instead, it was a plea to acknowledge the depths of their sin and repent. If they would do that, then God would change them from scarlet, that which is, comes from a worm, to be as white as snow. They could either do that or face the alternative we will see in the verses that follow. Even though we live some 3,000 years later, God's offer to us still holds true today. We are all sinners, and God offers forgiveness through repentance and faith in his Son, Jesus Christ, who has paid the awful price for our sins through his death and sacrifice at Calvary. The alternative of God's call for repentance are two in number. We find them in verses 19 and 20. If you're willing and obedient, you shall see the good of this land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The choice was there. They could either receive blessing from God or die by the sword. Today, you have a similar choice to make. You can either trust Christ as your Savior or face an eternity in hell. The choice is simply yours. In verses 21 to 23, we find God who was brokenhearted because the nation would not turn or not heed his call for national repentance. In the Old Testament, 
Israel is often called the wife of God, while in the New Testament the church is called the bride of Christ. At one time, Jerusalem was as a very faithful wife. Here, Israel has turned so far away from God that he looks upon her and calls her a prostitute. She has marred the covenant relationship between them and gone her own way. Their silver and wine were worthless and useless. They were full of bribes, and everyone wanted to be rewarded with something they did not deserve. They had also forgotten the needs for the needy. In the next two verses of chapter 1, God declares his sentence on the nation. In verses 24 through 26, God no longer acts as accuser of Israel for her sin, but now he becomes the judge. He will get rid of those who are his enemy. He will purge them to get rid of the dross. They will either die or go into captivity as punishment for their sin. Beginning with verse 26, everything changes. The prophet Isaiah looks into a day that is still future. From today even, I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be restored with justice and her penitence with righteousness. This verse is speaking of what will happen to Israel during the future millennial reign of Christ when he returns to earth as King of kings and Lord of lords. Finally, in the last four verses of the chapter, we have what will happen to those who reject the call of the Lord. The destruction of transgressors and sinners shall be together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed, for they shall be ashamed of the terebinth trees which you have desired, and you will be embarrassed because of the garden which you have chosen, for you shall be as a terebinth whose leaf fades, and as a garden that has no water. The strong shall be as tinder and the work of it is a spark. Both will burn together, and no one will quench them. Just as those in the days of Isaiah, who rejected the call of the Lord and perished, so will be the end of anyone who rejects God's offer of salvation today. So the choice is up to you. It means the difference between an eternity in heaven or hell. I trust the message that you just heard will be a great blessing to you, not only today, but throughout this next week. Here at Canada's National Bible Hour, we're so concerned about people and their spiritual well-being. We trust those of you who have walked with the Lord for many years, have sensed God's presence, trust that God will continue to bless you throughout this next week. There may be some that have listened to this broadcast who are not sure of their relationship with God and with the Lord Jesus Christ. And for those I'd like to share what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That means that every last one of us, including myself, have all sinned. And because of one sin, we're not eligible to be in the presence of a holy God who is perfect and pure and righteous. So we are separated from him and we need a savior. And the savior is the Lord Jesus Christ. He was God. He became man. He lived a sinless life. He went to the cross, and on the cross, he bore your sins in his own body as he took your place and took your hell and took the punishment for your sin as he hung there. He died, but he rose again on the third day, and he's alive, 
And he's seated at the right hand of God the Father, and all you need to do is understand the fact that you are a sinner and you need grace, you need a Savior, and you need to ask Jesus Christ to come in your life. You need to believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Don't forget to order your copy of Helen Steiner Rice's booklet entitled A Collection of Love Gifts. I know you will enjoy this booklet very much. You can get your copy by writing to Canada's National Bible Hour, Box 1210. St. Catharines, Ontario, L2R7A7, or in the United States at Box 2010, Buffalo, New York, 14231. You can also find past broadcasts at www.missiongo.org. That's M-I-S-S-I-O-N-G-O dot O-R-G. I trust the Lord will bless you throughout this next week. 